Well, hey, y'all. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here at Chatham Community Church, and I'm glad to see y'all here. It's, uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Great to sing that song. Uh, it's a song I haven't sung in a very long time, so I'm glad we're sort of roping it into our, 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 our part of our congregation. And, uh, and I hope the more we sing it, the more we sort of get into that reality, that thing we're longing for and hoping for as Mark was praying. If you are a guest, welcome. I'm glad you're here, uh, and I'd love to say hi to you at the end of the service, so I'm going to be in the back. Uh, come around, tell me your name, how you found us, what your experience was like this morning, and how you ended up in Chatham County. Uh, when I first got here, I loved collecting stories of how people ended up in Chatham County, because there's always lots of interesting ways we end up here, uh, and I'd love to hear yours as well. Uh, between social media and the abundance of online content, it's kind of hard to surprise people when it comes to uh, something that happens in a film or a TV show or even a book. Even with people putting up spoiler warnings in articles or posts on social media, the odds are high that if you don't watch the show or the movie or read the book uh, within sort of a short amount of time after it gets released, if you spend any amount of time online, the odds are high that you're going to read or see or hear something about a key plot point or a key point in the story or a key twist. But every once in a while, uh, there's an exception. It's like there's this societal agreement, this collective agreement that we're not going to reveal something, that we're going to hold this plot twist or, or this reveal secret because it is so good that everyone should experience it for the first time without having heard about it. Everyone agrees to be quiet about it, which is a wonder in the social media age, but it's not unique to the social media age. It was true before social media as well. It was true in 1999. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see The Sixth Sense, which is uh, where this uh, still is from, when it first came out in theaters. Uh, and because Puerto Rico is a few weeks behind the mainland when it comes to movie releases, by the time it came out uh, for home rental, I won't say what format it came out uh, for on home <laughs> rental, so I don't want to date myself too much, uh, I felt like everyone had seen it, right? I felt like everyone had seen it. And there was this collective gag order on the major plot twist. Now, I see dead people was like in the common vernacular already, but by that time, that wasn't the big reveal. That was even in the trailers. The reveal was that one of the two main characters played by Bruce Willis, who you can see on the screen, was one of those dead people. It was this collective twist in the movie. Uh, and the thing is that, they, that the filmmakers did not keep that secret. If you watch the movie, it is, you know, it's, they're not, they're, they don't have a sign over Bruce Willis's head that says, I am dead. But it's quite obvious that he is one of the dead people. He is one of the folks that Cole, the young man, sees and tries to help. Uh, and I think that's why people kept that thing secret. Because they wanted everyone to experience this dynamic that you could watch the whole movie and the thing be right in front of you and you still miss it. They wanted everyone to have this experience that we can miss a key element of the story even when it's right in front of us. We can miss the key element of the story even when it's right in front of us. And the thing is, that's not just true in fiction. It can be true in life as well. You can miss key elements of an interaction, of a story, of a relationship, of a situation, even when all the information is right in front of you. 
we can miss the key thing that is happening. It can also be true in our life with God or how we relate to God and Jesus. We can miss the key even if it's right in front of us all along. In the weeks leading up to Easter, we're, we're in a series here at Chatham Community Church that we're calling Step Into the Story. For 2,000 years, people have found a life-giving story in doing life with Jesus and following Jesus and stepping into life with him. In the accounts we have of Jesus' life, we see the story that he's telling for the world, the story that he's telling for us, the story of redemption. It's a story of love. It's a story of an eternity of goodness. It's a story he invites us into. And during the 2,000 years since Jesus was on this earth physically, people have read that story. People have heard that story. People have even encountered the power of God that's seen in that story, and they've still missed the essential part of who Jesus was, is, and always will be. Maybe that's true of some of us here as well. It was certainly true of the man we're going to meet interacting with Jesus today. Uh, in, in seeing how Jesus engages with him, someone who has all the information in front of him and still misses the key element, we'll get to see what Jesus reveals about himself, how he approaches those who have all of it in front of them and still miss it. And maybe we'll find an invitation for us, just as the man found an invitation for him to take a fresh look and reconsider who Jesus might be and step into his story. If you have a Bible, we're going to be reading from John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible or don't have access to one on a device, we're going to put it on the screen in just a second. We're going to start right at the beginning of the chapter. We're going to read a few verses in. And uh, whether you're following on the screen or listening to me or following in your Bible, I want to invite you to imagine the picture, to imagine the scene, to picture the story as it unfolds. So, so maybe some of you need to close your eyes. Don't do that if you're prone to falling asleep. But if you're not, you can do that if it'll help you sort of imagine or picture the scene. So here we go. We're going to be reading in John chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 1. It's going to be on the screen. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
This is relatively early in the time that we call Jesus' public ministry. So the time from his baptism all the way to his death and resurrection or the time where he's arrested. Uh, He's come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's one of the uh, high festivals or high holy days in Judaism. And he's drawn some attention as he's gone to Jerusalem. He's, he's gone into the temple uh, courts and he's sort of cast out money changers who seem to have been sort of taking advantage of people financially in the way that they exchange money, the exchange rates that they were putting on people. Uh, and he's cast them out of that place. Uh, and he's performed signs and he started to gather a crowd. And so naturally, he's drawn the attention of the Jewish ruling class or of the religious ruling class, right? They want to know what he's doing, but he's sort of keeping to himself. He's not yet sort of revealing all of who he is. He's being a little bit uh, conspicuous in some of the things, some of the ways he talks about himself. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. All right, it's difficult to understand, right, to pinpoint historically what the Pharisees were, which is the group Nicodemus is part of. It's, it's difficult to have a full picture of them. We don't have a lot that's written of them that explains it. We have, we have mentions of them, but not a lot that explains their history, their origins, or precisely what they were about. But from what we do have, it appears that they were a group with some notable influence. It appears that they were composed perhaps of some folks who were part of the Jewish priestly class and some people who weren't part of the Jewish priestly class. Some were scholars, some may not have been. It seems there was a mix of all sorts of people in that. There was some association going on and their function, what brought them together, uh, appears to be to guard a collective sense of identity for the Jews or the people of Israel as the people of God. Right, and keep them abiding by the law and give instruction for how to abide by the law in the day-to-day circumstances of their lives. They seem to have some role in deciding how the law would apply or interpreting how the law would apply in specific situations. And they get a bad rap. Uh, they, they, they've come to represent opposition. They've come to represent sort of uh, um, obstinance. They've come to represent hypocrisy. And listen, folks, some of that is earned. Well-earned, well-earned, well-earned. But I also understand what contributed to them taking the spot that they ended up occupying. See, the people of God hadn't heard from God in centuries. And that's not how things had been. They hadn't heard from God in centuries. This is the God that they looked to for guidance, the God that they looked for uh, for rescue, the God that they looked for for hope. They hadn't heard from that God in centuries. The God that they'd looked for for correction had been quiet. Everything was silent. He hadn't spoken. Now, there were reasons for this. There were reasons why God hadn't spoken. And it's not like they were without recourse. It's not like they were without uh, a knowledge of what God had called them to do or what God had invited them to do or what way they should follow. But God wasn't speaking at this time. And what was true now is true then, which is that nature abhors a vacuum. And where there was a perceived vacuum of God's voice, groups of people stepped in. Among them, the Pharisees. They were there to give guidance. They were shaping the concept of this is how God would want us to live. They were giving shape to that conversation. The problem is not that they were stepping into that space and giving shape to that conversation. The problem is that they seem to have added to what God had said. They seem to have built upon what God had said and, God, and gone further 
than what God intended. They filled in spaces with their words instead of God's. And that created a problem. They ran ahead of God and God's intended purposes for his people. Now, filling in when we don't have all the information is a human thing. Now, uh, earlier I told you to picture the scene when we read the passage. Uh, How many of y'all did that? Okay, a few. How many of you pictured the meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus occurring indoors? Some of you. Passage doesn't say. But because it's at nighttime, because it says that Nicodemus uh, goes to meet Jesus, we assume, well, it likely happened indoors. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. But what's true is where where there's a lack of information, we tend to fill in. We tend to fill in the gaps. We tend to imagine what was there when we don't have the information. And that isn't always bad. Sometimes it's helpful. It helps us, in this case, enter into the story. But by adding by building more, by going further than what God intended. The Pharisees have told a story about what it means to follow God, what it means to be faithful to him that is concerned about things different than what God is concerned about. They've made it about maintaining purity, following rules, and keeping their place. They've made it about maintaining purity, following rules, and keeping their place or their influence. Their story It's all about earning, it's all about proving, and it's all about protecting. And that's not the story God is telling. The story about earning, proving, and protecting is not the story God is telling. And that's not a problem that's exclusive to the Pharisees. It happens to all of us when we run ahead of God and his story for us, or when we try to tell our life story without us, without God. When we write our stories without God, we end up following into the familiar human tropes of earning, proving, and protecting. We make those things central to our story, and those things can't sustain a satisfying story when they're central. They can't sustain a satisfying story. Without God, these are the things that humans make the building blocks of their lives, the building blocks of their story. They make it, and we make it, about earning our place about proving our worth, and about protecting what we have. Earning our place, proving our worth, and protecting what we have. Which of these do you see in your story? In the times where you've told your story apart from God, or where you've run ahead of God, which ones are you most tempted to make central? Are you more prone to trying to prove your worth Are you more prone to earn your place? Are you more prone to protecting what you have? If we're honest, we probably have a mix of all three in our stories. Now, earning, proving, and protecting are not bad words, and they play a part in some of our stories at different points, and it's not always bad, but they make for poor central themes. They make for an unsatisfying life when we try to make them the main thing of our story. I was visiting an old friend recently, and we were preparing lunch, and we thought, you know, you know what would make this lunch great? An avocado. And there happened to be an avocado. And uh, so I went and grabbed the avocado. Now, if you've ever picked avocados, you know avocados are a tricky piece of food. They are a tricky piece of food. You've got to pick them well. You've got to pick them at the right time. Not only do you have to pick them at the right time, you've got to decide to cut into them at the right time. 
if you, at least if you want to experience the best of what the avocado has to offer. And as soon as I put the knife into that avocado, I knew it was not the right time. It was like they're trying to cut into a stone. It was that hard. It was that tough. I knew it wasn't ready. It was super hard. It tasted poorly. It needed more time. What was true then with that avocado is true in life as well. Sometimes when you cut too soon, you miss the best part. When you cut too soon, you miss the best of what's there. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes with a conclusion of who Jesus is. It's the conclusion that the Pharisees have arrived to as they've experienced Jesus in Jerusalem. He says to him, you must be, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Which is a bit of an understatement given all that Jesus has already done in Jerusalem and it's certainly an understatement given all that he ends up doing. But Jesus doesn't quite fit in the narrative that the Pharisees are telling. And as Jesus is engaging and Jesus is doing what he's doing, they're feeling pressure to come to a conclusion, to make a statement, to decide who Jesus is. So they conclude what they can and they miss what was in front of them all along. Even as Jesus tells Nicodemus more of who he is, as he reveals more of what he's about, it's like he can't quite process it. It's like he can't quite fit it into the conclusions he's already drawn about Jesus. He, he's cut too soon, and he's missing the best part. Now, this may be true for some of us here as well. It may be true of some of the people we know. We've come to conclusions about God. We've come to conclusions about Jesus. We've come to conclusions about relationships. We've come to conclusions about situations. We've come to conclusions about areas of life. We've come to conclusions about the Holy Spirit that are less than what was available or what was true because we cut too soon, because we stopped too early. Maybe it's because we were hurt. Maybe it's because something offended us or hurt us. Maybe we were angered. Maybe we were upset. Maybe we felt convicted and didn't want to address what was pointed out or what was drawn out. So we decided to close the book on life with God on life with Jesus, on life in the Holy Spirit, on a relationship or an area of life or a, a dream God had given us. We cut too soon. If we cut too soon, friends, we'll miss the best part. And the most painful side of that is that God still might bring the opportunity to enter into it and we might miss it. Because we've drawn conclusions where there was still more to come and we can't fit it into our paradigm. We can't fit it into what, the conclusion we've drawn. Friends, don't write the end when God's got another chapter. Don't write the end when God's got more. Don't write the end when there's still stuff developing. The Pharisees had concluded the story of what God was doing, and they missed what was happening with Jesus. They missed what was happening with Jesus. They missed who Jesus was. They had all the information in front of them. They knew it all. They had all the signs. They had all the indications, all the prophecies in Scripture, and they still missed it because they concluded before the story was over when there was still more to go. We all have opportunities to do the same. We all have moments where we have the choice to say the end 
or to say, let's turn the page and see if God has more. And see if God has more. Let's remain open. Let's remain open because as long as we have breath, God's got another chapter. God's got another chapter in how you relate to him, how you relate to Jesus, what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. God's got another chapter in the quality of our relationships, in, in the dreams that we've had in particular areas of life. God's got another chapter. Don't cut too soon. You'll miss the best part. Now, as a group, the Pharisees have come to conclusions, or at least that's what it appears based on what Nicodemus says. But, and Nicodemus is not rejecting those conclusions, but it appears that he's at least open, that there's something there, that he's got some curiosity, that there's something in him that says, yeah, maybe that's true about Jesus, but maybe there's a little more, right? That's, that's part of, partly why he, maybe he comes to Jesus. It may be why he comes to Jesus at night, right? Doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want anyone questioning if maybe he's not completely on board with the pharisaical conclusions about Jesus. Maybe he doesn't want the other Pharisees to see him. He's got some openness. And though he doesn't seem to fully get it in this story, even with all that Jesus says to him, Jesus still shares with him. Jesus still engages with him. Jesus still relates to him the story that God is telling. Jesus still gives him an opportunity because Jesus wants Nicodemus to see. Jesus wants Nicodemus to see. He wants to see the best. He wants him to see the best part. He wants him to see what's coming. He wants him to see what he's doing. He wants Nicodemus to see the kingdom of God. That's what he calls it. He wants him to see God's good will being done on earth as, as it is in heaven. He wants Nicodemus to see how God is putting things right in how humanity relates to God, how we relate to each other, how we relate to our world. He wants Nicodemus to see it. And he tells him, Nicodemus, in order to see it, you must be born again. And he says you must be born again of the water and of the spirit. What he's inviting Nicodemus to is a restart and an ongoing renewal. He's inviting him to a restart and an ongoing renewal. And that's what he invites us to as well. Jesus invites all of us to a story where there's restart and there's renewal so that we can see so that we can see what he's doing in our world, so that we can see the story God is writing in our lives, and with him so that we can see the story God is looking to write in our communities, in our families, in our relationships, in the world we are in. He invites us into a restart. That restart is marked both by the decision to follow Jesus and the entering into the community through baptism, the baptismal thing. The water is there. That's the invitation to the restart. That's the thing that in that time symbolized that you were restarting. It still symbolizes that today. And then he invites them into the ongoing renewal as he invites us as well. The ongoing renewal that comes as the Holy Spirit day after day shapes us and calls us and forms us and guides us into becoming the women and men God created us to be as we live in the story that he's written for us and is writing for us and is calling us into. And that process of restart and renewal is what gives us eyes to see ever more clearly the work that God is doing in and around us. 
It's what allows us to see the kingdom. It's what allows us to savor it. It's what allows us to enjoy the best parts of the life that we were made to live. And Nicodemus hears this, and he doesn't quite get it, but he's curious. And there's something about that curiosity that engages Jesus and keeps him going because he wants to know, okay, this thing is happening. He's confused about the idea of being born again. He wants to know, how is this possible? And Jesus honors that curiosity. He honors that willingness to engage, that willingness to dig deeper. How does this renewal and restart come about? And Jesus tells him, this is what Jesus says. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus alludes to a story from the Old Testament, a story that Nicodemus would be familiar with. It's a story in which God rescued his people. A story in which God saved them from something that was killing them. God saved them. And, God sa- and Jesus says, God is now doing something like that again. He's giving his mo- the most valuable thing, his most valuable thing, his son. He's giving his son so that all who turn to him and look, just like the people turned to that serpent, that, that serpent on a staff and looked and were saved, so that all who turn and look, to his son who will be lifted up will have life. Life eternal. will enjoy the best of the story. would enter into the story of putting things right. And that is the central element of the story, friends. It's not proving. It's not earning. It's not protecting. It's not driven by any of those things. The story that God is telling is driven by a committed love. The story that God is telling is is driven by a love that remains. The story that God is telling is driven by a love that gives itself. The story that God is telling is driven by a love that goes the distance. The story that God is telling is driven by a love that endures. The love that lasts. Have you looked at that love? Have you beheld the one on the cross? Have you received that love? Have you experienced the life that you were made for? Have you entered into the story God is writing? Have you stepped into life with God? You can do that today. You can do that today. Today is a good day for a restart. Wherever you are, Jesus meets us today. Jesus is meeting you today just like he's meeting me today. The key elements are here of who Jesus is, what God did through him, and what God is doing and what Jesus is doing now and forevermore. They're all here like they were for Nicodemus. And though it doesn't seem like Nicodemus gets it all on this day, something about Jesus' story arrests his attention and keeps him, he keeps him, keeps him engaged For the long run. It keeps him connected to Jesus. See, he doesn't get it here, but it seems like he gets it eventually. He shows up two more times in the Gospel of John. One time he shows up speaking up for Jesus. In the midst of a gathering of Jewish leaders, he speaks on Jesus' behalf. And then he shows up much later on in the story. 
as part of the group of people who are around when Jesus dies. Whereas many had abandoned him, he's one of the people who's there and takes responsibility for Jesus' body to make sure he gets a proper burial. He's there expressing love and commitment to Jesus. Each of Nicodemus's appearances seem to indicate a greater openness, a greater engagement, one more step into the story, one more step into understanding and engaging with who Jesus is. I think all of those steps were pleasing to God, each one of them. Friends, we all move at a different pace when it comes to God. We all move at a different pace when it comes to Jesus. And there's room and there's space for all of us. There's room and there's space for all of us. Just like he did with Nicodemus, Jesus meets us where we are. And all he invites us to is to take the next step into the story. To take the next step. He's here. He's meeting me. He's meeting you. My step is different than yours, though we may have some overlap. Whatever it is, take the step. Is your step to look, for, to, look to Jesus, to look to the cross for rescue. If that's the step, take it today. Is your step to, to get in, to commit to the restart and be baptized. I've been praying for baptisms. Be an answer to prayer. <laughs> take that step. Is your step to engage in the renewal that comes through the Spirit? That seems to be the step that God has been inviting many of us to. I mean, we've had a couple of series on the Holy Spirit. God has been doing some stuff among us. Maybe you weren't here when we took that step as a community, but maybe it's the step for you today. Maybe you were here, and there's another step. Take it. Now, what if none of those seem to be an option for you? What if nothing connected to Jesus seems to be an option for you? Well, I'd like to invite you to reconsider perhaps some of the conclusions you have about Jesus. Maybe those conclusions have kept you from following Jesus as Savior and Lord. Maybe you're unwilling to consider Jesus as someone worth giving your life to. I'd like to extend an invitation to you. C.S. Lewis was one of the great theological minds of the 20th century. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes about some of the conclusions people come to about Jesus. And he invites people to take another look, to take another pass, to take an honest look on Jesus. And he specifically talks to people who, uh, who want to say that Jesus is a moral teacher. And here's what he says. These are the people who say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Maybe that's true for some of us here. And here's what he says. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus did Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. To settle for anything, uh, any conclusion about Jesus that labels him simply as a good man but short of who he claims to be is to miss the story he told about himself. It's to misrepresent what he said about himself, who he claimed himself to be. So if that's you, if you've arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is nothing more than perhaps a good man and a good moral teacher, I want to invite you to reconsider that. 
to reconsider that. What if, in the days leading up to Easter, you dedicated yourself to reading some of the accounts we have of Jesus' life? What we call the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't know where to start, Mark is the shortest. Read them and actually engage with what Jesus says about himself. Who he shows himself to be. The story he tells about himself. And consider what he might be inviting you to. He may be inviting you to reconsider your conclusions. Because you may have cut too soon. And you may be missing the best part of the story. What if this season was about you taking steps into God's story? Friends, wherever we are, we all get to be part of God's story. No matter the past we've had, the stories we've lived, the stories we've told, no matter whether we've been in the story and stepped out of it, no matter whether we've rejected it or held it at a distance or embraced it altogether, we all get to be part of God's story. We all get to participate as long as we're willing to step into it. That's all we need, is a willingness to step into it. Whatever the next step is, would you be willing today? Be willing to take the next step into God's story. Be willing to participate. One of the ways that we participate in God's story as a community is through communion. We take the Lord's Supper, as it's called sometimes. We remember what Jesus did on the last night. He was with his disciples before his arrest and eventual death and resurrection. It's a way in which we step into a story. We step into the story when we take communion. And if you are on the way with Jesus, if you've stepped into the story, you are invited to take communion. Now, we're going to do communion a little differently today. Uh, communion is both a somber moment as we remember Jesus' death, but it's also a celebratory moment because we remember also his resurrection. We remember that the promises that Jesus made in the first century are true today. We remember that part of what we're celebrating or part of what we are embracing as we take communion is that there is life and life eternal in Jesus. Now, normally we take a somber tone here in communion. Today, we're going to take a celebratory tone. Here's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that God invites us into his story. We're celebrating that God has made a way for us to enter into his story. We're celebrating that we all have a place in the story, no matter at what pace we might move. We all have a place into the story. So today, I want us to approach the table with celebration, with joy, with gladness. And some of that is going to be reflected in the song that we're going to sing. So we're gonna, when the, I'm going to invite the worship team to join me on stage now. Uh, come and join me. And I'm going to give us the normal instructions for communion that I always give. And then the worship team is going to play us an upbeat song. So don't, I don't want you to be thrown off by that because that's not how we normally do it. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to come with a sense of gladness and gratitude about the story we've been invited into. A story of life, a story of love, a story of hope, a story of reconciliation, a story of things being put right again. I want us to grab uh, the, one of the gluten-free crackers and one of the um, uh, cups of grape juice and take that back to our seat and hold those together so then we can celebrate the meal together. In the middle of the song, I'm gonna come on stage and I'll give us instruction for how to take the elements together. I've asked some folks to host communion tables, so uh, folks who I've asked to host the communion tables, come up here, 
and uh, uh, you are also part of the celebration, so uh, normally we keep sort of a sombrero. Big smiles today. Big smiles today. So once again, if you have stepped into the story with Jesus, the table is open for you. When the worship team starts playing, you may come up, come up with joy, come up with gladness, come get your elements, go back to your seat, and then in the, at some point in the song, I'll come up and lead us in the taking of them. Let me pray, and then the worship team will lead us in song. Gracious God, your table is open for us. You welcome us. This is a story you've been telling and Christians have been telling for millennia. We tell it today with gladness and gratitude in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.